What we learn and think we know about historical events totally depend on the written record. We may suspect or question if the record is inaccurate or false, but it's the broken threads to a story that often hold the secrets and the truth. The Hindenburg story is no exception. Zeppelin commanders Charles Rosendahl and the German Hugo Eckner knew enough to obscure the fatal structural flaws. Yet their celebrity and determination to protect that celebrity kept that critical bit of fact hidden until the discoveries of best-selling author and former Wall Street Journal reporter Michael McCarthy. The cover-up was not just about the source of the Hindenburg fire, but included something far more sinister. Episode 3, Ghost and the Machine. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, cracked up a little bit. They backed motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. Get it started. Get it started. It's right and it's rising. It's rising terrible. May 6, 1937. Reporter Herb Morrison is on the landing field in New Jersey, watching the famous Hindenburg drop out of the sky. The ship erupts into flames. It's running and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning fast. And all the folks between us, this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Four or five hundred feet into the sky. And it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now. And the flame is crashing to the ground. Not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity and all the... More than 80 years later, and we can still feel much of the drama that Morrison and witnesses experienced. Today we marvel that the unimaginable, a large motorized hydrogen bomb, was even possible. Remember how we met Mark Heald in the last episode? Like Herb Morrison, he was also an eyewitness to the disaster. Just an eight-year-old then, he is now 90. After witnessing the Hindenburg disaster, Mark grew up to become a PhD physicist. He helped me understand hydrogen, its combustible dangers. Professor Heald explained to me that because the hydrogen molecule, H2, is so tiny, hydrogen is the Houdini of elements. It loves to escape. Hydrogen is dangerous because it is very explosive and, and it is very difficult to confine, to hold in anything. The combination of, of the difficulty of controlling its whereabouts and its explosion hazard uh, makes it difficult to work with. In particular, in, in the context of lighter-than-aircraft zeppelins, uh, how do you make light, lightweight gas bags that will contain the, the hydrogen without it leaking out? Because uh, it's very difficult to make materials uh, other than uh, steel tanks uh, that will really hold the, hold the hydrogen and keep it from leaking out. Leaking hydrogen, of course, led to the quick destruction of the Hindenburg. A far safer gas is helium, a gas so safe we still use it in party balloons. Back in the roaring 20s and early 30s, helium was mostly available only in the United States. America had a monopoly on the stuff, and for national security, it tended to keep helium out of the hands of foreign powers. The U.S. military flew its airships only with helium, for safety reasons. But looking through old newspaper articles, I learned something surprising. Hugo Eckner, the German flyer who ran the company that built the Hindenburg, didn't order any helium from America before the tragedy. He would later write in his memoirs that he did, but news coverage just after the Hindenburg tragedy makes it clear that 
that just wasn't true. Now, stay with me. There's a reason history still blames the Hindenburg disaster on some sort of American denial of helium. In 1938, the year after the Hindenburg tragedy, Eckner finally did try to order helium from America. It was the first time he formally applied for the safer gas. Was he concerned that they hadn't fixed the leak of vulnerability that destroyed the Hindenburg? Is that partly why he wanted helium? Eckner appealed to Congress to let Germany use helium for the remaining sister ship of the Hindenburg. Later, that ship, the LZ-130, will travel a sinister path. The sister ship had recently been christened the Graf Zeppelin. Yes, it's the second Zeppelin named Graf Zeppelin. The first was largely retired by then. In seeking helium, Eckner appealed to American pity, all those poor Hindenburg victims burned by hydrogen fire. Lakehurst base commander Rosendahl also lobbied to give helium to Germany. He wanted to keep the airship cause alive. He knew how shocked the public was by images of a blazing hydrogen fire. He knew that type of fire was vicious. In his own words, as we all know, a hydrogen fire is just about the hottest fire that there can be. Still, American politicians in 1938 refused to release helium. It was the year after the Hindenburg disaster. They turned Dr. Eckner down, flatly. Why? By early 1938, things had changed in Germany. Hitler seemed destined for an all-out war, and some American military officers and diplomats were worried. Somehow, they thought, the Germans would exploit their treasured helium for war. And they were right to be suspicious. No sooner had Eckner returned to Germany empty-handed, without helium, than he did something remarkable. He allowed the German Air Force to use the LZ-130, the sister ship of the Hindenburg, to spy on neighboring countries. The notorious Hermann Goering was the commander of Germany's air forces, and he had a problem. Germany's airplanes were too loud and too fast to conduct surveillance on its borders. He needed an eye in the sky, but a quieter one. The Zeppelin was perfect for such surveillance. Much quieter than planes, much slower too. According to one British author, Eckner personally flew the sister ship in a spy flight. That was on September 22, 1938. Under the ruse of a flight to Vienna, the new Zeppelin cruised along the southern border of Czechoslovakia. The dining room of the, quote, passenger ship was packed with 24 electronic consoles to monitor radio transmissions. There were oscillographs to track electrical pulses, along with several dozen Luftwaffe signalmen, photographers, and language interpreters. I was so hoping not to have to go to Germany. It's an expensive trip. I'm looking at several thousand dollars in flights, hotels, and more. I feel like the guts of the story are in the US and in New Jersey, whether the tragedy, the hearings, or the commotion of Charles Rosendahl. But I can't responsibly ignore the summons. Something's not adding up about Eckner and his testimony about a sharp turn prompting the Hindenburg's destruction. There are other nagging things about Eckner. 
I've got to go to Germany. Looking back, I realized that no one can possibly figure out the story of the Hindenburg unless you go to Germany. There's a Zeppelin museum in the little town of Friedrichshafen. The town is literally on Lake Constance, the lake the hapless horseman crossed on stopping and suddenly realized he had clip-clopped for miles perilously over thawing ice. The writer of Lake Constance dropped dead from horror. Friedrichshafen is where more than 100 Zeppelins were built in the early 20th century. Most of the Zeppelins the world has ever seen come from that very spot. And today, there is an archive with historical records there. Those are the bells of the old palace church in Friedrichshafen. The church's towers are a recognizable old landmark on the skyline. When the Hindenburg or other Zeppelins quietly floated up and departed, passengers could see the steeples below them. They're called onion bulb steeples, similar to the ones you see in Russia. It is January of 2017, and the temperature is about 10 degrees. That's the warmest day my wife and I are here. I will come to call this place Friesenhofen. I suddenly realize that I'm here in Germany, exactly 80 years after the winter overhaul. My German is okay if I'm reading, but I cannot speak the language. I have my travel phrases, and I am tall and blonde and may look the part, but every time I go into a restaurant and announce, Guten Abend, well, the host or hostess says, I'll get the English menu for you. In Friedrichshafen, I have hired a university student, Thomas, to help me read documents. We spend three days in the Zeppelin archives and find many useful letters and memos. He tells me my German is improving, but I am paying him. I will later hire a professional translation team to ensure that I get precise translations of all key documents. I'm excited by one telegram I find in the Zeppelin corporate papers. It has to do with the problem of worn gas bags. The problem they discovered in the winter of 1936. Fixing this promised to be expensive, and the telegram directly addressed the leak hazard. After some debate about whether the gas bag maker or the Hindenburg factory was at fault, the lead technician of the Zeppelin company weighed in. He sent Captain Lehman, the little captain, a telegram. It was dated January 20th, 1937. It was three months before the Hindenburg caught fire. This must have been about the time Lehman was first aware of the magnitude of the structural flaw and the troubling gas bag damage. The technician said the blame was ours, Zeppelin's, not the gas bag companies. He wrote to Captain Lehman, referring to the Hindenburg by its model number, 129. We recommend reporting damage to the gas cell of 129, just as any other warranty covered damage that occurred during airship construction. This is a matter of design flaw. In that one-sentence telegram, the lead technician put two German words together that were an explosive combination. Zellenschaden, Konstruktionsfehler. Gas cell damage, design flaw. The words design flaw on the Hindenburg from a leading technician of the Zeppelin company. An incredibly important document and discovery I realize I've traveled 4,000 miles for this one piece of paper. This important evidence also convinces me that Rosendahl didn't tell the truth when he claimed that Captain Lehman told
told him on his deathbed that the Hindenburg was destroyed by an infernal machine. It just doesn't make sense. Lehman knew better. Why would Rosendahl do it? Well, remember that he was the top evangelist for Zeppelins in the US. If that aviation model proved fatally flawed, his career is over. The demise of the Hindenburg spells the end of his career, but not if it were sabotaged. And this is important. Rosendahl appeared before the Commerce Department investigation two times. His testimony was under oath there. He never once mentioned a deathbed confession of Lehman, a bomb, or any infernal machine. Had he have done so, he could have perjured himself. And here's a sinister note. Lehman was dead. There was no way for him to confirm or deny what he said. I believe Adolf's account of what Lehman actually blamed. Lightning that ignited leaking hydrogen. Adolf could have testified to Lehman's actual confession, what he heard from his own ears. But Adolf was never called before the panel. Rosendahl blocked him. Knowledge of prior damage on the Hindenburg from a technical genius and insider like Lehman was revelatory. It demanded follow-up with Adult, Eckner, and others from the Zeppelin company. Investigators could have pressed them for answers and for maintenance records. But the investigative team never learned what you now know. A few years later, Adult would die in the bombing of Dresden during World War II, taking to his grave what he knew. I reflect on those long days spent at the National Archives, the frustrated poring over 300 pages of FBI documents, Rosendahl's scathing letter about Adult. Friedrichshafen is a long way from Washington, D.C., and home. I'm cold and tired, but elated to have found that thread as the only place to start unraveling this mystery. A mystery left for posterity. The naval station as first witness, but experts believe the exact cause of the greatest of air disasters will never be known. Over the Hindenburg will loom a question mark that can never be forgotten. While in Friedrichshafen, my wife Marcy and I decide to visit the Zeppelin Museum itself. I have been working in the archive, where researchers go to collect information for articles and books about the Zeppelin era. The museum itself is a pretty cool place. They have an exhibit that's a life-size version of some floor areas of the Hindenburg. It's nearly as roomy as today's ocean liners. It's almost like a carnival cruise ship in the sky. Elsewhere are grim memorials, a Hindenburg officer's toasted uniform with burn holes all over the jacket. It's on display among other artifacts, including a twisted, melted clock. I've walked through the place pretty quickly, figuring mostly what I'm gonna find of value is in the archives. It's our last day in Germany, it's late, and the museum is about to close. As we exit, my wife says to me, did you see the tape used to repair the ship? She knows this is important. We've talked about it privately, and I have told her that tape was used to repair the Hindenburg gas bags. She knows that she has seen something really interesting to me, something that I've missed, my beautiful wife is rather proud of herself. She tells me where I'll find the exhibit. I can be bad with directions. I go a bunch of different ways trying to find this tape. I get lost. At one point, I walk into a room dedicated to the Zeppelin Company's World War II years. On one wall, I see photographs of a rocket. From all the reading I've done by this point, 
I recall that the Zeppelin company did help make quite a terrifying rocket during World War II. The Nazis called it a wonder weapon, the V2 rocket. Hitler hoped it would turn the war to Germany's favor. It was a real threat, as America's General Eisenhower would later admit. I'm running out of time. The museum is about to close. I decided to snap a couple quick pictures at the exhibit, figuring I would look at what was there later. I will soon learn that snapping a single photo would open a door into horror I had never pondered. I leave the World War II room, find my way to the exhibit with the tape. I snap a couple pictures and join my wife outside. The museum closes. The research went well. I'm looking forward to getting home. I feel like I found some important information, documents that reveal just what happened to the Hindenburg, the damaged gas bags, the hasty repairs, the telegram on the design flaw, a smoking gun, surely. And I found more. And what's remarkable is that no other author has found this and written about it. This is history. It needs to be corrected, told, and retold. I look at the photos I just took at the museum. And by the way, while you're riding on a plane over the ocean, it is really not a good idea to look at Hindenburg disaster photos. But as I'm sitting on the plane for the flight home, I come to the shots I took in the World War II area. I look at the V2 rocket photograph. A group of men in Nazi uniforms. They're standing on some stair steps. My eye is drawn to one particular man. He is wearing civilian clothes, a dark hat, and a winter coat. He looks an awful lot like, like Hugo Eckner. I maximize the photo. It sure looks like Eckner. Really hard to tell in the little camera viewfinder. Weird. If you read any of the various Hindenburg books, Eckner is always described as an opponent of the Nazis. Did we rely too much on Eckner's autobiography? I certainly need to take a harder look at this. When I got back to the States, I emailed the librarian at the Zeppelin archive. I asked her for some identifying information from the photo I took. And I forwarded her my copy of the photo of the group of men. I asked her who they were and where they were. I figured they were somewhere in Friedrichshafen, somewhere where the rockets were being made at the old Zeppelin factory. The next day she wrote back, Eckner was indeed in the photo. But what I did not expect was the location of the photograph. It was not Friedrichshafen. It was in a town called Pinamunda. I'd never heard of it. After a little research, I learned that this town, this Pinamunda, was a super secret arms installation for the Nazis. It was on the Baltic Sea in Northern Germany. I think to myself, there was absolutely no way Eckner could have gotten into that rocket base if he were the Nazi resistor he claimed he was. Without even knowing, I was tapping along a wall. And I suddenly realized I had hit a huge hollow spot. Over the next two years, I would bore in on every detail of Hugo Eckner's war years. I would find that he had remarkably constructed an anti-Nazi record that hardly existed. Eckner lied about helium. He lied about his resistance to the Nazis. And he twisted facts about the Hindenburg to help hide a sinister Nazi past. And no author had caught on. 
Eckner's celebrity blinded everyone. Author after author passed on Eckner's fiction as fact. The fabrications were so well soldered into his autobiography that no one spotted them. What I learned is that Dr. Hugo Eckner had lived a double life, the full details of which are too exhaustive to spell out in this podcast, but I do examine them closely in my book. Here's one item I'll leave you with. We've already touched on the rocket construction the Zeppelin company did during World War II. That rocket, the dreaded V-2, terrified the Allies. The rocket work would eventually link the Zeppelin company and Eckner to slave labor and the notorious Dachau concentration camp. To help cover it all up after the war, Eckner would alter key details of the Hindenburg's history. Just know that some of the Hindenburg story in the history books is not what really happened. It does make you wonder, what else in history have we gotten just wrong? What will we find if we dig elsewhere? Thanks for listening to The Hidden Hindenburg, the story of my quest to get at the truth of this mysterious tragedy. I'm Michael McCarthy, the author of the new book, The Hidden Hindenburg. For the full story, packed with even more intrigue and mystery about the tragedy, please read the book, The Hidden Hindenburg, the untold story of the tragedy, the Nazi secrets, and the quest to rule the skies. It's available at Amazon.com and other retailers, or your local library. You can also visit hiddenhindenburg.com Special thanks to my producers for this podcast, Judith McRae and Maurice Basalen and Ron Carpenter, sound engineer at Beatbox Entertainment in Chicago.